Good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord, everybody. Isn't Jesus good to us? What a wonderful day the Lord has given us. And I know it's a little wet on the outside, but the power of the Holy Ghost is so beautiful in this service. And you all look so wonderful. It's a joy to be here. Uh, a real honor to be with your pastor and his wife. Uh, love and honor this man. His voice goes far beyond this church and this area and this state. And he blesses the kingdom of God all around the world. And uh, I, uh, I'm amazed at how many mutual connections that we have and we share. Uh, he is connected and mentoring and preaching and teaching uh, men of God and women of God and pastors. And uh, don't you thank God for Brother and Sister Vasquez, the wonderful people of God. My goodness. You just kind of hit the Pentecostal lottery. You got a great place to worship God. You got a great pastor, great team. Uh, thank God for the legacy of the Wilsons. Um, so uh, thankful for them. And uh, I'm so grateful for Brother and Sister Hughes. Um, you just have a wonderful team here. And then so many of you so committed to this local church. I will get right to the word of the Lord today, but before we're seated, I'd like it if you would lift up your hands, and then if you're a worshiper of the Lord, lift up your voice higher than your hands, and just give God a great, 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 great praise. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you, God. We're so thankful to be in your house. Do what only you can do and heal what only you can heal and fix what only you can fix and deliver what only you can deliver. Oh, Jesus, we give you praise today. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Such an honor to be with you. You may be seated. Scripture simply doesn't say very much about him at all. His story is obscure. It is seemingly quite insignificant. And the crowning achievement of his entire life is recorded in just two verses. That's all he gets in all of Scripture is two verses. And those two verses are tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament surrounded by many of the more dramatic adventures of the kings of Israel. They were important, him not so much. They did great things. It didn't seem like anybody really noticed him. You have to do some serious detective work just to dig up a few details about his background. And to me, that makes what he accomplished all the more remarkable. His family came from the lineage of the Hararites. This wasn't any Wilson lineage or Vasquez lineage. This was the Hararite lineage. They were men of the hills. They were mountain dwellers. The word Hararite is a combination of the noun mountain and the verb cursed. Because it was a really difficult life trying to scratch out a meager existence, in that hard, unyielding rock of Israel's desert hills. And to make matters worse, not only was he of the tribe of the Hararites, the cursed mountain dwellers, his dad's name was Agi. And Agi means a fugitive, one who flees. So his dad had a reputation of being the coward of the county. He had a reputation to be as somebody who ran at the first sign of difficulty or ran at the first sign of trouble. And so this young man grew up in that house and his dad wasn't much and that makes what he did all the more remarkable. You see, names in ancient Israel could reflect either the qualities of the bearer of that name. So sometimes they'd name a child because, you know, they, they, they saw something in that child. Or sometimes names just commemorated momentous events that 
happened to coincide with um, his or her birth. So if you'd had a child born in northern Mississippi, maybe a couple of weeks back, you might have named them Snowstorm. I'm not sure. But they would name their babies that way. And, uh, and by the way, I've got uh, snow on my front lawn about that deep. I'm real happy to be here this morning, just, just so you know. I'm extra happy that I got to be here for the HER conference all week long because I didn't have to shovel that stuff this week, and that's a blessing. Now, that's how they name babies. It could be named for anything. And we don't know for sure exactly what was going on when Shama was born. But it must have been pretty bad because Shama's name, you can look it up, it means, pick one, wasted, empty, desolate, deserted, devastated, horrified, appalled, astonished, abandoned. That's not a great name. Don't name your baby that. Shama's name literally meant appalling desolation. Hi, here's my son, appalling desolation. That's not a good name. To me, that makes what he did all the more remarkable. This young man who apparently was born at a time of appalling desolation, Shama, somewhere early in his life, he made one really important decision. He determined that my history is not going to determine my destiny. I am so grateful that God allows us to make the same kind of decision. So as Shama grew up, he determined, I am not going to be confined by this meager mountain existence. And so he took his little family and he moved down to the fertile lowlands of Israel where at least you could have a farm and plant some crops. But when he got there, he found out the country wasn't in great shape. Israel was in some serious trouble in those days because it was led by a backslidden king named Saul. And Saul's reign is basically marked by two things. Number one, the absence of an altar. The only time Saul ever went anywhere near an altar is when other people were looking at him and he wanted to impress him. He was a fraud. And the other thing that marked Saul's reign is the Philistines came in and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it away into the lands of the Philistines and Saul did nothing. And the Ark was gone. But that little box with the angels on top, the Ark of the Covenant, it was the tangible symbol of God's presence. And the Philistines soon learned that Jehovah God could look after himself. Thank you very much. Before it was all over, their idols in their temple where they'd sat the Ark of the Covenant, their idols had fallen over, toppled across the threshold, and broken. As if to say the idols of the Philistines had to bow before the presence of Almighty God. And so God could perfectly look after himself and his presence and his Ark of the Covenant. But the point is Saul didn't lift a finger to go after the Ark of the Covenant. Finally the Philistines determined like we can't take this box anymore. And they put it on a cart and they sent it back to Israel. And Saul still left it in the outlying areas. He didn't bring it back to where it belonged. Later, David would become king. He was king about five minutes, and he started saying, we got to go get that ark. We need the ark. We can't do the kingdom of God without the ark of the covenant. The ark represents the tangible symbol of the presence of God. Can I tell you something? Here's a clue about the apostolic church, like this great church. We can't do church without the power of the Holy Ghost. We're not even willing to try. They got a great worship team here. They've got wonderful music. We've got a great building, but we're not relying on any of that because the building and the singing and the music and the preacher, we can't change your life, but the power of the Holy Ghost can get on the inside of you and it can turn your night into day. It can turn your darkness into light. It can turn your awful past into a glorious future. And so we're not trying to have church without the Holy Ghost. When Shammah landed in the lowlands of Israel, he had a farm now, but his king was a disaster. But thankfully, there was another king in the wings, and Shammah soon found David, 
along with about 400 other men. Now the 400 men that Shammah was friends with and they found David and they found him to be their hero and their leader, can I tell you there wasn't much going on for any of these men. 1 Samuel 22 and 2. Here's David's congregation. And everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented. If you're any of the three, you're in good company this morning. There's probably other people like you right here. They're distressed, they're in debt, they're discontented, but they gathered themselves unto David, and David became a captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Now, later, David would be crowned king of Israel, and some of these same loyal men would continue to serve him, and David loved them with all of his heart. The bravest among those 400 would be forever referred to as the thirty. David called them the 30 because they were bold and brave. But then there was a trio of soldiers whose exploits elevated them even above the 30. And David, with fondness and with honor, always called them his three mighty men. He was still talking about them on his deathbed. In fact, it's on David's deathbed where he mentions this man named Shammah and it's the only good press Shammah gets in the whole Bible. Two verses. Among those three, there was Adino. Adino killed 800 men at one time with only a spear. And then there was Eleazar and Eleazar fought the enemy until the muscles of his hand froze around the hilt of his sword. After the battle, they had to pry his fingers off his weapon because he'd fought so bravely and valiantly. And Shammah became the third member of that trio, the three mighty men of David, and that just elevates him, in my opinion. Because anybody that could serve King David like he did, he's good in my books. And here's the only two verses that tell us about his exploits. 2 Samuel chapter 23 and after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. Now, just imagine that. After him is this man over here. Would you like to meet him? His name is Appalling Desolation. He's the son of the coward, the runner, and he comes from the cursed mountain. Whatever. But here's his story. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop, where was a piece of ground full of lentils, just some beans. And the people fled from the Philistines. But Shammah stood in the midst of the ground and defended it, and he slew the Philistines, and through him the Lord wrought a great victory. That was his claim to fame. That was the day that defined him. That was the battle where he stood. Now the Philistines, they weren't anything to... They weren't trivial. They were the most fierce and enduring foe ever faced by the ancient Israelites. You read the pages of the Old Testament and you'll find one bloody battle after another and it raged back and forth between the Philistines and Israel for nearly 600 years. If you've seen... The, the map of the Mediterranean, you know that the nation of Israel, that little nation at the far end of the Mediterranean Sea, they have a beautiful coastline. But in that day, they were largely denied access to their own sea coast because the Philistines had five strategically placed cities. They were city-states. They were strongholds. And so because of Ashdod and Ashkelon and Ekron and Gath and Gaza, those five powerful strongholds of the Philistines, Israel couldn't even enjoy their own coastline. And then the Philistines had this huge technical advantage over Israel because in the ancient world, they alone possessed the technology of iron making. So their weapons were stronger and their chariot wheels were stronger and their weapons were far superior and the Philistines were a cruel and ruthless enemy and they did not play fair. One of their favorite tactics was what a battle uh, evaluator might call the harvest attack. The Philistines would wait lay low for months and they would watch from the hills around Israel 
as the Israelites planted their crops and tended their fields and they'd wait for an entire season and they'd watch from the shadows as the Israelites toiled under that blistering sun and the Israelites did all the back-breaking work and the Israelites tended the fields and planted the crops and, and they were the ones that did all the work. And then just as the crops ripened in the field, the Philistines would swoop down into the fields at the very last moment just as the crops were ripe and they would steal the fruit of Israel's labor. And in that one attack, they would rob Israel's families of food and they would steal from the farmers of the nation of Israel all of their livelihood. So nothing was more devastating than a harvest attack and it had happened over and over and over and over again and this year was no exception and the Philistines were at it again. And when they crested over those mountains and headed down into those fields, I've got to tell you, their invading forces struck terror in the hearts of the people of Israel. And so by now, most of them have fled They've left their fields at the mercy of the enemy because they know we're just Jewish peasants. We're just Jewish farmers. We don't have swords and spears and shields and chariots. All we've got is a rake and a shovel. We've just got handmade farming tools. We've got no chance at all against a battalion of highly trained Philistine soldiers. So if we stay in the field... We're risking life and limb. It means almost certain death. If we stay in the field, we're giving our lives for these insignificant plots of ground. And so one more time, they dropped all of their farming tools and they headed for the hills. They ran for their lives. And that, brothers and sisters, would have been the end of the story. But fortunately for Israel and very unfortunately for the Philistines, on this day, there was somebody who was more than just a farmer. There was somebody that was more than just a peasant. He didn't have a great name, but he had a great heart. He didn't have a great pedigree, but he had some boldness, and he decided to do something that would change everything. There was one man in that field that day who wasn't just a farmer. He was one of David's three mighty men. He had the heart of a warrior and on that day he single-handedly turned the tide of the enemy's invasion. While everybody else fled the scene to avoid the intensity of the battle, while everybody else abandoned the harvest they had worked so hard for, while everybody else decided, I guess my family is just going to have to live with the losses one more time, Shama did something that changed everything. He stood his ground. He locked his feet. He squared his shoulders. He looked straight into the faces of the enemy and he said, not here, not me, and not today. It changed everything. In the English language, we have a saying. I think it probably comes from Mississippi somewhere. When something's of little value, when something's of negligible importance, we say, that's not worth a hill of beans. Because a hill of beans, beans are small, and on their own, they're of very little value. So a bean isn't worth much. A handful of beans isn't worth much. A field of beans isn't even worth much. And that's what Shama had, just a field of beans. It's not worth a hill of beans. It's not worth a field of beans. And on that day, that's what Shama found himself defending, just a field of beans. Now, Shama had only a minute to decide what he was going to do. Am I going to run away like my friends? Am I going to give up like everybody else? Or am I going to do something different for my life and my family and my future? If, am I going to stand my ground? We don't know exactly what was going through his mind. I mean, the poor guy only gets two verses. We don't exactly have a good psychological profile of Shama. He gets two verses. So we don't know what was going through his mind as he turned to face that Philistine battalion all alone. Maybe he'd worked extra hard that year planting that field of beans. Maybe he just didn't want to take bad news home to his family one more time. Maybe he was just tired. Ever get tired of the enemy's business? 
Ever get tired of the enemy's attacks? Well, maybe he was just tired of the raids that left their crops in ruins and their fields barren and their children hungry and their homes depleted and their hopes defeated. Maybe he was just tired. Maybe something rose up in him that day that said, not me, not today, not here, not now, not this field. You can come this far, but no further. Maybe Shama just finally had it up to here. We don't know if it was a sudden decision. Maybe Shama had given this a lot of thought while he was toiling in that field all those months because everybody knew that the Philistines would eventually be back. They attacked every year. And he knew that everybody else around him, they're like his daddy. They're just going to flee. They're going to run. They're going to chicken out one more time. It had happened every few months. Shaman knew that it wasn't easy to defend a field of beans. My goodness, a field of beans is this wide open flat field. There's no cover. There's no place to hide. You got bean vines almost knee deep. And every time you try to move, your feet get tangled. You stand up, you're an easy target. And the enemy's coming. And they can attack from all sides at once. And so it's not easy to defend a field of beans because the terrain favors the Philistines. Shama is sorely outnumbered. Anyone who could help him, they've already hightailed it for the high ground. And yet on that day, brothers and sisters, Shama stood his ground as though he was defending a gold mine. He stood his ground to deny the enemy even one seemingly insignificant piece of land. Because here's how it works on this wonderful Sunday morning. Somewhere, sometime, somebody has to stop retreating. Somewhere, somebody, sometime has to say, this is enough, devil. Somewhere, sometime, somebody has to say, this is not happening again in my life. Somewhere, sometime, somebody has to say, not my home, not my family, not my marriage, not my kid, not today. Somewhere, somebody has to stand up to the enemy. Somewhere, sometimes, somebody has to realize that the more territory you surrender to the enemy today, that's just the more territory you're going to have to fight for tomorrow. So it begs the question, why not here and why not today? Why not now? Why not you? Why not your family? Why not this service? Why not this Sunday? But wait a minute, Pastor Raymond, it's just a field of beans. It's not worth a hill of beans. But you see, God had declared something to Israel in Leviticus chapter 25. The land shall not be sold forever, God said, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So somewhere that settled in Shammah's head. That settled in Shama's spirit. That settled in Shama's heart. And he said to himself on that day, when the Philistines are coming over those hills and everybody that could help has already left and he's all alone, he said to himself, wait a minute. If this land is God's land, then this farm is God's farm. And if this farm is God's farm, then this field is God's field. And if this field is God's field, then guess what, enemy? These beans are God's beans. You're not getting even one little bean out of this field because God said the land is mine. Shama wasn't about to give up even one tiny insignificant piece of his heritage to the enemy. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, you choose your battles. But sometimes your battles choose you. You're not even expecting the attack of the enemy. You're not even expecting the trouble in your family. You're not even expecting the depression that tries to get in your mind. You're not even expecting the financial setback. 
David chose Shama as one of his three mighty men because on the day that the battle chose him, Shama refused to run away. He stood and defended that little field of beans like it was the most important piece of land in Israel. It wasn't a convenient time. It wasn't a comfortable place, but he said, not today. This is my field of beans. You're not coming in here again. You're not taking this again. I've had some setbacks in the past, but I refuse to live like a cursed mountain dweller anymore. I refuse to live like the son of a coward who runs anymore. I refuse to live like that. Today I stand. I stand here. I may stand alone, but enemy, look at me. These beans are my beans. This field is my field. This farm is my farm. You're not welcome here. My goodness. <laughs> we all want to dream big dreams. We all want to do great things. But what we miss is that sometimes it's the little insignificant, invisible battles that if we'll win those day after day after day, they add up to a great victory in the end. Little victories can result in great big victories. On that day, way back in the Old Testament, the poor guy only gets two verses. But on that day, he did something that was so powerful. He did what Paul would later write in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Neither give place to the devil. I got to tell you, the devil's real. The devil's fierce. He doesn't play by any set of rules that I know. The devil doesn't love you. He will tempt you and make it look like sin is pleasurable and sin is all that and sin is a wonderful option for your life. The devil hates you with an everlasting hate. You know why he hates you? Is because you have a second chance and he doesn't. You have a chance to repent today and he doesn't. You have a chance to give your life to God today and he doesn't. You have a chance to turn it around today and he doesn't. He hates you. And he's always trying to worm his way into your mind and into your family and into your home and into your heart. And Paul said, when the devil comes, you slam the door in his face. Don't even give him a foothold in your life. Shama stood and fought that day because he knew something everybody else had apparently forgotten or overlooked. He knew. If I give the devil this insignificant field of beans, if the Philistines come in and they take this field, I'm just going to have to fight them later on another battlefield. At some point, I got to stop running. At some point, I got to stop just kind of turning tail and going away. At some point, I've got to stop letting the enemy trample all over my life and my mind and my home and my family and my future. At some point, somebody has to make up their mind, not today. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to face the devil down today. This is my day to be different. Shaman knew if they take the beans... They're going to come back for the barley. <laughs> if they take the barley, they're coming back for the corn. If they take the corn, someday they're coming back for the cattle. If I give up the field, they'll come back and tear down the fence. If they come back and tear down the fence, they're probably going to come back and burn down the barn. If they take the barn, they're coming after my house next. If I give up the house, they're coming for my family. If they take my family, they've taken my future. All because somewhere way back there I gave up a field of beans. <laughs> Here's what you've got to learn about the devil, the enemy of your soul. The enemy will attack until someone fights back. That's it in the scripture. The enemy will attack until someone fights back. But you have it in you. The human will is the strongest force on this planet. If you make up your mind to serve God, there's not a demon in hell that can make you give up on God. If you make up your mind, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The devil, he's terrified of somebody standing up and saying that. So today the question is, what about your field of beans? I don't know what that is. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children. 
Maybe it's your very life. Maybe it's your future. Will you stand up and fight the little battles that nobody else sees? Will you look the enemy squarely in the eyes and plan a no trespassing sign over your life? See, many people, many people all around us, they've decided that the beans just aren't worth the fight. They've decided that it's just not worth it to have to face down the enemy. They don't realize that if they don't fight today, they're going to end up fighting tomorrow and the battle's going to be worse. They're going to end up fighting next year and the battle's going to be a lot more fierce. Many people, they're too lazy, too exhausted, too scared, too busy, too distracted to fight. They don't realize that any territory we surrender to the enemy today becomes his launching point for the next assault tomorrow. Quite literally, the bean patch you quit fighting for now becomes the devil's base camp to plan his next invasion. If you give the devil a foothold in your life, that will become a stronghold in your life and he will torture and torment you for the rest of your life. So you got to determine that the weapons of our warfare, they are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Somewhere you got to decide, I'm fighting this battle. Now, on that day of battle, Shama stood his ground. If you'd have been there, you'd have watched. It was amazing. Shama stood his ground all alone. But not for one second do I think he actually was alone in that battlefield. Because when Shama stood up for God, God stood up for Shama. You see, Shama had been trained by his leader, David. David wasn't King David in the early days when Shama served him. David was just kid David. He, he, he wasn't king. He didn't live in a palace. He was living in a cave when Shammah and those 400 men found him and followed him. David had nothing. But do you know all of Israel sang the songs about David and that giant named Goliath? That was who was Shammah's mentor. Here's what Shammah was taught by David. David was the one. When he was just a kid, he finds himself stepping out into a valley, the Valley of Elah. On one side are the Israelite armies, and they are shaking in their boots. And on the other side are the Philistine armies. And you know the story. You learned it in Sunday school. Every day that giant Goliath goes out and taunts and torments the armies of God, and he says, you send me a man that we may fight. And if I beat him, you have to serve us. But if he beats me, we have to serve you. Everybody knows that's a fixed fight. Everybody knows that no man in Israel is going to be, be able to prevail against this nine-foot-high giant. Everybody knows it's not a good deal, including King Saul, who's in his tent quaking in his boots. Saul is head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel and he's still not brave enough to go out and tackle that giant. So little kid David walks into the camp on the 40th day. Nothing has changed for 40 days. Taunts and threats from the enemy every single day and the whole army is paralyzed with fear and they're sitting there in their tent saying, God, why don't you do something? And what they can't figure out is that up in heaven God's saying, why don't you do something? On the 40th day, this young man, David, walks into the camp and the Bible says that he heard the taunts and the slurs and the curses of the enemy. And that is all that changed on the 40th day. The 40th day was just like day 39 and 38 and 37, all the way back for 40 days. The only thing that changed is that David heard it. And when David heard it, he said, who does that giant think he is to torment and taunt and threaten the armies of the living God? See, everybody else had the wrong perspective. Everybody else is looking at their little army 
and that great big giant. Only David had the right perspective. When David walked out onto that field, he wasn't looking at a great big giant and the little Israelite army. He was looking at a little tiny giant and his great big awesome eternal God. It wasn't a fair fight because God was on David's side. So to everybody else that day, David walked out on the field all alone. David whirled that slingshot. You know this story. Now, you can believe what you want. I'm not sure that David was a crack shot with the slingshot. He may have been. He'd trained. He'd had practice. I'm not sure he could hit the forehead of a giant at that many paces. Maybe he could. I think God took that stone like a guided missile and put his breath behind it, and it was like shooting a bullet before there were ever any bullets on this planet. And the giant came down when the slingshot whirled, and the Philistine army fled, and Israel won a great victory, and they all thought David did it. David did not stand in that battlefield alone. David stood with Almighty God. Shama did not stand in that field of beans. He'd learned from David. If I'll just stand my ground, Almighty God will come to my defense. That's why Shama was brave in the day of battle. That's why you can change your life today because if you'll stand up for God, I promise you on the authority of the word of God, God will stand with you. God will stand with your family. God will do a work in your life, but it takes Somebody that says, today is my day. It's not an accident that the Bible says over and over, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Somebody somewhere sometime just has to say, this is my day for a miracle. Music, come on back. Shama stood his ground alone, but he wasn't alone. What nobody else could see, but what the Philistines soon found out, is that when he stood up to the enemy, God stood up beside him. Now, remember, Shama's name means appalling desolation. And that's exactly how we feel when the enemy tries to come in like a flood in our lives. There's desolation everywhere. The destruction is appalling. It seems like sometimes we're losing ground. That's how we feel. Can I tell you, that's exactly how Israel felt when they lost their beloved temple and when their whole nation was taken into captivity in Babylon. They felt like God's forsaken us. God doesn't love us. It's a time of appalling desolation. But God sent an old prophet into captivity in Babylon and his name was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel... He writes a whole book. He's not just a speaking prophet. He's a writing prophet. And his prophecy, 48 chapters of it, is in your Bible. And if you read through all of Ezekiel, you're going to come up with some crazy stuff because he did some crazy things. He did all these symbolic actions to talk about God's judgment and God's mercy and God's remnant and God's provision. But if you can tough it out all the way to the end of Ezekiel, it's 48 chapters and Some of it's a little difficult to wrestle through. But if you can make it all the way to the end of Ezekiel and you start heading into that last chapter, chapter 48, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, God sends that prophet a vision and he writes it down for the people of Israel. And in that vision, their temple's been destroyed, their city's been devastated, everything is a mess, everything is gone, everybody has lost hope. It's appalling desolation. And in the very last chapter of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is in the midst of a vision and he sees a man with a measuring stick. And that man is measuring a new temple, a restored temple, a much bigger temple, a much more glorious temple. And that's how Ezekiel's vision comes down to a close. God is going to take what the enemy meant for evil and he's going to turn it around for good. God is going to take what the enemy stole and he's going to give it back a hundredfold. God is going to take what you lost and he's going to let you find something that is so much greater and so much bigger and so much more glorious. And so that's what Ezekiel is seeing as his prophecy comes down to an end in chapter 48. He's watching this man measure the temple. It's amazing. 
And if you can tough it out, you can get all the way through that massive book of Ezekiel and get through all the strange visions and all the strange prophetic actions and kind of wrestle with what they mean. And Sometimes you probably won't even understand, but if you can wrestle through all the way to the end and you watch Ezekiel's vision unfold, a glorious temple, a great temple measured, it's way bigger than anything they've ever hoped for. It's way grander than anything they've ever envisioned because God, He doesn't mess around. When He restores what the enemy took, it's always better, it's always greater, it's always bigger, it's always more glorious. So you come down to the very last chapter and the very last paragraph and finally the very last verse of the prophet Ezekiel. And he's watching this man and here's what it says. The very last verse. This new temple was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day, the name of the restored city, the glorious city, the name of the city from that day shall be. The Lord is there. Or if you could read it in Hebrew, the Lord is there, Jehovah Shammah. That's what it is in Hebrew. God took Shammah's name, which means appalling desolation, the worst mess that the enemy could make. And he put Shammah's horrible name, Shammah's horrible history, God put Shammah's name with his name. And when he did, all of a sudden, it was greater and grander and bigger and more glorious than anything you ever could have thought. Can I tell you, I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what you've been fighting. I don't know what the enemy has done in your family. But if I can tell you, if you'll give your name into God's name, if you'll give your life into God's life, if you'll give your little self into God's presence, God can take what the enemy has done and he can flip that story, he can flip that narrative, he can flip that history and give you a destiny like you cannot believe. Stand with me right now. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to preach to you today, but I'm just not that impressed with my preaching that I would come here and just give you a little lecture and we can all go home. I came here because I have confidence that in a church like this where the name of Jesus is lifted and where the worship of God's people is present, anything can happen in a service like this. Your family can be restored. Your body can be healed. What the enemy has done in your mind and in your past, you can be released from that. Let me tell you something. If you'll make a choice to stand up for God, God will say, I'm not letting you stand there alone. I'm not letting you stand for me without me responding and when God steps into your scene he can take your name and your history and your mess and your sin and your past and he can put it with his name and then it's all over for the enemy they've made wonderful provision for us we've got lots of room to pray and it is the custom of this great church that we come together and pray together as God's family so right now, I'm opening this altar from side to side, and I'm asking everybody that will, if you've got strength in your body to walk down that aisle, I'm asking you, especially if you call this your church, if you'd walk down, and when you get here, come as close as you can and make room for all the people that are still coming down the aisle. We got a minute to get in position because God is going to do some amazing things this morning. Keep coming. Come right in close. We still got wonderful people coming up these aisles. And God is going to touch some of their lives today. God is going to touch some families today. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. I say to you today that the enemy meant to destroy you. The enemy meant to hurt your marriage permanently. The, the enemy meant to destroy your kids permanently. But the enemy doesn't have the last word in my story. He doesn't pen the last chapter in the book of my life. God has the last word on me. The Bible tells us the very last chapter of the book of Job that God turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. 
So as they begin to sing, I'm going to ask everybody here, everybody back in the pew still, if you'd reach out to somebody, put your hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray together. You pray for them, they're going to pray for you, and God is going to touch somebody's house today. God is going to touch somebody's family today. God is going to touch somebody's life today. As they sing, I want you to lift up your voice and pray. Somebody can receive your healing today. Somebody can receive your miracle today. Somebody can receive restoration in your home today what the enemy did is not the last of the story what the enemy said is not the end of your life God has a purpose and today's your day I'm going to stand up today I'm going to tell the enemy this is my field of beans this is my family this is my house in Jesus name you to turn to somebody ladies with ladies guys with guys family and friends with family and friends would you turn around you've prayed beside them I want you to pray with them right now pray for them lay your hand on them face them lay your hand on them pray a prayer of faith don't pray a prayer uh, of just mourning and oh I'm so sympathetic sympathy can't fix it when it's that bad sympathy can't fix it when it's appalling desolation but if you lay hands on them and pray in the name of Jesus Jesus can fix it when you put his name together with your situation the miracle happens when you put his name together with your home the miracle happens in Jesus name
here's the deal. If the devil can affect, if he can attack you on home court, if he can attack you in your house, if he can attack you in your family, he knows that you're just going to come to church and you're just going to be defeated because the battle's so fierce at home. 
So without making any big deal, it's just family. It's just us, and we're all God's family. I want you to join together with your family members. It's not good to come to church and pray all by your little old self, and you can't pray for your family. Your family is ground zero for serving God, and that's why the devil's fought some of the homes in this church. That's why some of the homes in this church, you're wrestling with something. You're hurting at home. It's been tense at home. And I want to tell you that if you'll stand up today and say, this is my day, the Lord will stand up beside you, and that can be over in Jesus' name. I said that can be over in Jesus' name. I want you to join the hands of your family members. I want you to lift those hands together all over this room. Hands lifted everywhere. And if you're alone here at church today, let me tell you, God puts the solitary in families, the Bible says. So this is your family, and you can join with any family. They'll receive you with open arms. You can do it right now. You can join your hand with their hand. Right now, I want this church to pray like this church knows how to pray. I want some of you dads to step into your role as the priest of your home. Lift your voice and pray against the enemy who's tried to attack your peace, tried to attack your joy, tried to attack the unity of your family. I want you to speak out loud and pray. Pray for your wife that God would touch her. Pray for your children and grandchildren that God would touch them. Wives, you lift up your voice and you pray over your husband, over your family, over your kids. If you're here all alone, this is God's family and we are your family and you join us right now. God wants to go home with every family. He wants to stand with you as you face your battle. Oh, pray, church. This great church knows how to pray. This church was founded on prayer. This church knows how to pray. God, our little babies, we refuse to let the devil encroach on our homes. Our little babies, they're going to serve you. They're going to love you. Our prodigals are coming back home. Our prodigals are coming back home. In the name of Jesus. Oh God, we need a new building to reach these communities. But we need a new building to house all the prodigals that are coming back after years of straying, after years of sin. They're coming back home. Let God touch your home right now. Let God touch your marriage right now. Let God touch your family right now. thankful that we have a God that can go beyond our past maybe our reputation maybe what we've done in our past to give a brand new destiny isn't that awesome amen thank you Pastor Woodward for the great word this morning amen and God is certainly here if you've never been baptized in Jesus name we've got water and clothes and we've got men of God that are ready to do that and we would love nothing more than to be able to baptize you in Jesus name for the remission of your sins and that's how that's how that old name gets buried and there's a brand new name the name of Jesus that is put over your life and over your family tonight's going to be an awesome night tonight we begin with prayer at six o'clock and then at 6 30 another great service and we're certainly looking forward 
to, uh, to another great word from Brother Woodward. Amen. If you are a guest or if you brought a guest, we, we want you, if you will, to make your way to the, uh, to the discipleship room. And again, that is go past the restrooms into the, the, the large room, and we've got some snacks. We want to spend some time with you. Amen. You are dismissed in Jesus' name. Let's have a great day. Be free at 5, prayer at 6, and church at 6.30.